0: This audio presentation is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good morning, and welcome to this Policy Circle conference call with the experts. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at RAND. Today, we'll be discussing a timely topic two days before we turn the clocks ahead for daylight savings time sleep. These calls are one of the benefits of being a Policy Circle, RAND Next or Next Leaders member at RAND. We thank you for your support. I'm joined this morning by Wendy Troxell. She's calling in from Park City, Utah. Wendy is a senior behavioral and social scientist at RAND and adjunct professor of psychiatry and psychology at the University of Pittsburgh. She's also an active clinical psychologist who helps patients overcome sleep disorders through behavioral treatment. Some of you may have even seen or heard Wendy talk about sleep. She just did a TEDx talk on sleepy teens in December. If you Google Wendy Troxell TED Talk, you'll find it. It's great. So good morning, Wendy. Good morning. Hi. Um, this Sunday, most of us in America are going to lose sleep, a full hour of it as the uh, clocks spring forward. Uh, how's that going to make us feel?
1: Yes, it's the dreaded spring forward of daylight savings. Most of us are actually going to feel mildly sleep-deprived. On average, Americans lose about 40 minutes of sleep when we spring forward. And so we've all experienced, you know, a mild dose of sleep restriction kind of in our daily lives. You're likely on Monday morning to wake up feeling a little more groggy, um, a a little less energized, maybe even um, some mild sort of health complaints, headache, stomach ache. Um, Many of us might feel irritable, less uh, productive. In fact, one study showed that in the week following daylight savings, there was a statistically significant increase in what they call cyber loafing. So basically being present at work, but uh, doing many activities on the computer that don't involve actual work.
0: Just, Just one hour does all that to us.
1: Just one hour. And the thing is that there are major individual differences in our responses. To such even a small dose um, of both because it's a dose of both a, a little bit of sleep restriction but also also a shift in um, our sleep wake patterns relative to our um, internal biological rhythms, and some people experience this more intensely than others and you know and they may experience it also when you know they travel and they experience jet lag, but even just a mild shift um, can cause more significant symptoms for some people um, and particularly those who start out with a significant amount of sleep debt. So if you're already not sleeping enough, and then you get hit with the um, hour sleep loss roughly of daylight savings, you're likely to experience these symptoms more acutely and more intensely.
0: Is it the same factor you have with jet lag?
1: It's, it's very similar. It's really this desynchrony between uh, your internal biological clock or your circadian rhythm, and we actually have these circadian genes literally um, in every cell of our body. So it affects everything. Um, it's this desynchrony between these internal clocks that run um, uh, on a, at an endogenous level and then um, sort of the external clock that we you know, live our daily lives with. We also see it um, in shift workers who are chronically living out of sync with their biology.
0: Maybe not quite as bad because you don't have the super low humidity of the plane or the, the x-rays you get exposed to up there.
1: Well, yeah, well certainly those are other factors that, that can also um, make you feel um, crummy after a, a long flight.
0: <laughs> what could we do when we have uh, daylight savings time hitting us? What, what could we do to make the effect less.
1: Sure. Sure. So, I mean, the truth of the matter is, uh, you know, it's Friday. This is happening um, uh, uh, Saturday night. So um, we, we don't have a whole lot of time to prepare. But so these are kind of tips to minimize the blow, both for daylight saving, but in general are some good sleep tips. The first is that we all need to do a better job of allowing ample time for sleep in our lives. So we tend to live in a 24 seven world where sleep is the first thing to go when the demands of work or family life or whatever it may be, um, kind of, uh, uh charge in. And, and we think that sleep is this, um, sort of, um, item to be bargained. And it's really not, it's a fundamental biological need. And we, tr- and if we sacrifice it, our brains, our bodies, and our behavior suffers. So the first thing is really setting a mindset that sleep is important. And then, you know, these, this, A couple days as we approach daylight savings, certainly, um, you know, try to go to bed at a reasonable time. You can even try to slowly back up your sleep schedule by about 15 minutes. You know, tonight go to, you know, don't have a super late night. Try to go to bed actually a little bit earlier. You don't want to do large shifts um, in your sleep-wake cycles because our bodies don't really respond to that very well, but small shifts work. So if you go to bed 15 minutes earlier tonight, wake up 15 minutes earlier tomorrow, do the same thing, you're gonna slowly um, transition a little bit easier uh, when the shift happens. Um, Second thing to do, uh, and this is important for for as we approach daylight savings, but this is uh, really a perennial sleep tip, make the bedroom a media-free zone. There's really no place for technology in the bedroom, um, both because of the stimulating content uh, of the various uh, media that we might use iPhones, um, iPads, and such, um, social media content, that kind of thing. It's very stimulating, but then there's also direct effects on our sleep-wake cycles um, uh, due to the light exposure from these devices, which can actually suppress the hormone melatonin, um, which signals uh, sleep. The third thing we can do. So should
0: we? Should we? Should we should, before you go to the third thing, should we? Should we be popping melatonin pills?
1: Um, I would not recommend um, that as a, a frontline strategy. You know, our bodies naturally produce uh, mel- melatonin, um, and you know, con- melatonin is a um, natural supplement. Really, we don't have conclusive evidence that um, they're particularly effective as um, as a hypnotic. That is as something to help you sleep, they actually are quite effective um, in helping you to um, uh, shift your sleep-wake pattern. So if you're uh, traveling a great distance and are going to experience significant jet lag, for instance, going um, to or from Australia – Actually, melatonin could be um, a useful strategy in conjunction with light exposure, which is the third tip. Um, But that's, again, something that I would actually talk to your doctor about and see um, um, how to appropriately dose melatonin because many people uh, use it incorrectly. But the third factor that actually kind of works in conjunction with melatonin and is very important as we shift our schedules is light. So set a consistent wake-up time um, because that's going to also help Um, set your internal biological rhythm and adjust to the new schedule. But wake-up time also gives you um, the opportunity for exposure to light. We want a lot of bright light in the morning um, to help set that internal rhythm and remind our brains that, okay, this is new wake-up time, and it signals the brain uh, for alertness. By the same token, in the evening hours, especially as we're adjusting to the new, the new time change, uh, you want to keep uh, your light um, in your home or in your office in the evening hours, um, if you haven't still be at the office, um, relatively low light. Um, because again, light is an alerting signal to the brain um, which uh, can further disrupt uh, these um, uh, biological rhythms.
0: You, you said you don't like there being devices in the bedroom. Is it okay if I stare at the screen just before I go into my bedroom?
1: recommend that you uh, disconnect, you know, both literally and sort of uh, um, metaphorically about an hour before bedtime. Uh, We, again, we're in this 24-7 world where we, you know, are constantly connected and we're rushing from one activity to the next, including our bedrooms. And that's really asking a lot of our brains and our bodies to be able to just Go from this, you know, constant movement and constant connection to being able to fall into deep, high-quality sleep. Instead, we really need to practice healthy behaviors so that we teach our brain. Okay, nighttime is actually a time for disconnecting, unwinding, perhaps connecting with our families, and then preparing for a restful night of sleep.
0: But I want to read. I want to. But I. I want to read a book. I want to read a book as I'm going to bed, and, I, and it's, it's on my Kindle. <laughs>
1: Well first of all, there are if, if you insist on uh, you know media uh, dr- driven uh, reading and uh, there are ways to sort of dim the lights that are are less um, uh, likely to interfere with your sleep. But there is also this thing called real books, just as there are these things called real alarm clocks. I can't tell you how many times I hear from my clients um, that they must have their phone in their bedroom because how else will they wake up? And I introduced them to the wonderful concept that's been around for many, many years and still available at your, you know, local store, which is a simple plug in alarm clock. They work, they do the trick of getting you out of bed, and they don't allow the interference of the phone in the bedroom, which is the single factor that keeps us so connected um, and, you know, awake and stimulated during our day. That's the last thing we want in our bedroom.
0: All right, so a little a little back to the basics might help. The feelings that you described about the day after switching to daylight savings time, we, we hear a lot about adolescents being sleep-deprived. Would it be fair to say that's how adolescents feel every day?
1: Yeah, it's actually a really good analogy. Um, you know, daylight savings is actually a very, as I said, small dose of sleep restriction, and it's actually a very small shift in um, our uh, sleep-wake cycles. Adolescents, in contrast, um, experience this kind of desynchrony between their internal biological rhythms and their forced sleep wake schedule due to early school start times, really on a chronic basis. Um, and and it's, a, it's a more significant shift. Um, this is based on an adolescents' um, sort of basic sleep biology, which I'm happy to talk about
0: yeah I'd love to know what what the science tells us about uh, the, these biological rhythms of, of teenagers in particular
1: sure um so what happens during around the time of puberty is that teenagers experience um, a shift in their biological rhythms just like we're going to experience a shift um, you know forced by daylight savings um, coming up this weekend um, and this is what what happens is that in teenagers the hormone melatonin which we've discussed, um, the release of, horm- of melatonin signals the onset of sleep. And in teenagers, um, this release of melatonin is delayed by about two hours later than what we see in adults or, chil- or younger children. And so that means that teenagers' bodies are starting to pump out melatonin around 11 p.m., um, and they keep on pumping out high levels of melatonin well into the morning hours. So effectively, you know, and this is biologically, a biological basis, teenagers are programmed to stay awake later and sleep in later. So I often hear from parents, well, this is all just about good sleep hygiene, good parenting practices, which absolutely I'm a huge um, proponent of, uh, of uh, healthy sleep hygiene and parent involvement, including setting sleep schedules. The problem is uh, you can, you know, send a a teenager to bed at 9 p.m., but many simply won't be able to sleep.
0: But why why does their biology not want to allow that?
1: I I think the why uh, is still an open question um, in, in terms of, you know, why brains are set up. To do this, but what we do know from really robust science is that there is this um, identifiable shift um, in the release of, of the mel- uh, in the release of melatonin around the time of puberty um, that persists um, through late adolescence. And then the thing is, it resolves. So the other thing I hear when we talk about school start times the a factor that's in direct conflict with this developmental stage. I hear often, well, you know, why should we coddle our teens and change school start times, that is, delay st- start times to uh, more naturally coincide with the biological rhythms? Because we're, you know, eventually they're going to have to adjust and, you know, adapt to the real world. But the truth of the matter is, this is a developmentally specific, unique change in, um, in their sleep wake cycles that is different from. Earlier childhood, so little kids don't experience this. That's why it's very easy to wake up an elementary school student, um, you know, at 7 a.m. Often they're awake before then. Um, much harder in adolescence, and they also it resolves. So by the time, and you know, most teenagers become, um, you know, in their mid 20s, they that that uh, biological shift has resolved, and they're back to being able to wake up more naturally. Um, uh, in the morning, just like we are as adults.
0: So my school district, uh, Fairfax County in Virginia, has made the switch. Uh, it was last year. Uh, the yeah. high school students are going now, and I've got one, uh, going to school about an hour later than they, than my my first two kids were going an hour earlier. And the elementary school kids are going a bit earlier, uh, so they've, they've swapped uh, uh it sounds like you would say that makes sense uh, and, and if it does uh, are are other school districts doing the same thing?
1: Yes, Fairfax is actually one of many, many districts around the country. There are over um, 44 states um, um, with many districts within them uh, that are you know either actively considering later start times. Or have already made the change, like Fairfax, also like Seattle Public Schools. So you know, and then many, many smaller districts. Um, And actually, this this um, movement um, and the scientific basis for delaying start times. Um, to align more closely with adolescent sleep-wake cycles Uh, actually began in the 90s with some pioneering work um, in uh, school districts in Minnesota. Uh, So the the scientific evidence and support of why we should do this is quite clear, and now we're getting more and more evidence from many of these case studies around the country um, that show the clear benefits of when you make this change, um, how that affects um, many um, important adolescent health Outcomes ranging from their academic functioning to their mental and physical health to even car crashes.
0: So, so there's enough evidence to show that this shift is paying off.
1: Um, I would certainly need more, and there's obviously there's definitely challenges in conducting um, rigorous before and after studies uh, that are able to show the clear benefit. The- clear sort of causal relationship between delaying a start time um, and and these benefits, but more and more studies um, are accumulating. And I would say in my experience as a scientist, I have rarely uh, been so involved in research or reviewed the research so thoroughly that is really unequivocal. I mean, you know, as a scientist, we are used to seeing equivocal results, mixed results in just about everything we do the science here is quite clear. When we delay school start times, um, adolescents' health, their academic performance, and their safety improves.
0: Is this movement toward the earlier start times for high school students, is it uh, still ramping up? Has it peaked? Uh, Is the job done?
1: No, the job is actually from done, I think that there is an increased interest in it, and we see this um, in districts around the country. We're also seeing it popping up in legislation around the country. Um, and so there's clearly some of the science is being transmitted that we have been operating on this assumption that we can just set bell times, school bell times, you know, arbitrarily, and many of them have been set, you know, years and years ago, but before the sleep science was so robust, showing that the last thing we should do is having our adolescents start earliest, which is what happens in most school districts. And I want to say that, you know, as much as this movement is growing, unfortunately, the vast majority of middle and high schools still start around 8 a.m. or earlier. Um, so there's growing interest, unfortunately, and there's momentum in, in a number of ways, and, and we're hosting a conference coming up that I'd love to talk about. Um, so there's a lot of enthusiasm for this, but what we lack is, um, I think, at the district level, there's initial enthusiasm, but then there's a failure to be able to enact the change because change is hard. And changing school start times affects really not just Students and their families, but in communities as a whole. So, overcoming these logistical challenges, unfortunately, is really hindering many school districts from doing the thing that's right for their students. Um,
0: I assume when you when you say that it's affecting communities as a whole, I assume you mean that. Uh, the facilities at these schools become less available to the community as a school end times become later?
1: That, that could be a consequence. It, you know, that, that sort of it, the use of the school facilities in after school hours. Um, many schools, in fact, you know, do use schools for things other than um, school um, in the evening hours. So that could be one factor. I'm also talking about other community level impacts, like impact on traffic um, impact on transportation, mm-hmm. um, impact on the other schools. Um, I can tell you as a scientist that, uh, as they did in Fairfax, flipping um, the schedule for elementary school students to go earlier and adolescents to go later. Um, scientifically, that makes sense. And frankly, most parents who have elementary school students should know that most um, elementary school students actually naturally wake up early. Adolescents do not. And, and again, we can prove that's sort of scientifically documented as well. But even so, it does affect communities because, you know, in an individual family, they may, prof- they you know, are, first of all, used to the schedule that they have. So status quo is always more comfortable. It changes hard So it does affect everyone. Um, but, again, I always have to come back to um, if you can see the evidence and these robust effects. On not only adolescent health but our collective public safety because we have these adolescents in cars new drivers driving while sleep-deprived that is an issue of public safety and that's just one example and so for me it's the challenge of conveying that information and letting districts and communities know that I understand and we understand that there are, these logistical challenges are real and they take thoughtful um, uh, consideration, but they really pale in comparison when you think about the benefits of later start times for teenagers.
0: Have you seen any apps that are particularly good for helping you sleep better? You know,
1: it's a, it's a good question. I have sort of a conflicted um, view of technology because I have uh, certainly issues with technology in the bedroom. Um there are some good apps, particularly um, for people struggling with um, uh, insomnia, which is the number one sleep disorder. Uh, there are some um, apps that um, use uh, the evidence-based cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, and um, this is supposed to be the front-line treatment for insomnia. Unfortunately, um, most adults uh, use uh you know, uh, when they're struggling with insomnia, if they go to their doctor, they'll be prescribed a pill instead of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, even though it's been proven to be more effective. Um, But one of the challenges is not every um, uh, uh, community has access to a specially trained um, uh, sleep clinician who is trained in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So these apps um, can help uh, disseminate this effective treatment to others. Other types of apps um, that are useful that uh, many people are using, like sleep trackers, um, you know, I really am mixed about that uh, because I think the I think monitoring behavior is a very good, um, you know, that's just a good thing to do if you're monitoring, if you're trying to change any health behavior. We do the same thing with diet or physical activity. It's good to track what you're currently doing to increase awareness. And so in that way, I think these Sleep trackers are generally pretty helpful, Um, but frankly, you could do just as well by having um, a paper diary next to your bed uh, where you indicate what time you went to bed uh, that night, what time you woke up, and about how many times you think you woke up in the middle of the night. Um, At the very least, to be monitoring your scheduling of (laughs) sleep. I realize that, you know, I'm very old school in this, but the message... That we trans, trans, transmit to our brain when we always have to have an iPhone within arm's reach you know of of our, our or a our, bodies, fit, our pillow. <laughs> or well or a fitbit it's still technology um and I also just want to say there's actually been an int- uh, a recent study by a, a colleague of mine um uh, Dr Kelly Glazer Baron who showed that um for some people these fitbits or um trackers are actually increasing their worry about sleep um so there is sort of a, a dark mm-hmm. side to them if um for some people who are prone to insomnia Being sort of a little too obsessive about your tracking of your sleep can actually um, put a little too much pressure to sleep, which is not good. Heighten your anxiety, I suppose. Exactly. So there has to be a fine balance. We've got to prioritize sleep. But at the same token, the more you try to fight for sleep or um, force yourself to sleep, the more it's going to elude you. So it's finding the balance.
0: All right. I think we have a caller.
1: Yeah, hi. So my, so my question is, for those of
0: us who are pretty intense in work and don't get enough sleep, is there anything uh, that you recommend, such as I like to try and power nap, don't always do it, is there any data that really says that's something we ought to be thinking about, just close the door in the office in the afternoon for a certain period of time and just power nap for 10, 15 minutes? Is, it, is there some data that says that really can help refresh you and get you going again?
1: Yes. So the thing about naps is appropriately timed and um, appropriate duration of naps can actually be quite effective. Now, I want to say, though, it is not the solution for chronic, chronically sleep-depriving yourself. So it is actually quite effective, for instance, um, in the military or um, in, for physicians or other um occupations that require um, extended shifts, let's say, and that you need these short recovery periods, napping can be quite effective. What we generally recommend is you want it earlier in the day, um, and you want them relatively brief, um, around 20 to 30 minutes, uh, so that uh, you kind of get the benefits of the rest without feeling the grogginess um, if, you, if you sleep too long, and also without um, interrupting your nighttime sleep. Uh, so f- for people who struggle with insomnia, uh, generally naps are not recommended. So insomnia being the trouble sleeping at night despite adequate opportunity, um, naps can actually interfere um, with their nighttime sleep. So, But it, as, as, a, as a, an acute method of dealing with sleep loss, Um, I would certainly say that appropriately timed um, naps and for appropriate duration um, could be a good thing. Um, But if you find that you're needing a nap and if you're not in one of these sort of shift work or extended shift schedules, um, I would want to look at the root of the problem. Is it that you're just working so hard that you're not allowing yourself adequate opportunity for sleep? Or might there be something else going on with your sleep that's causing it to be non-restorative sleep? For instance, could there be another sleep disorder involved, such as sleep apnea, which would lead to um, uh, uh, heightened uh, daytime sleepiness and a need a need to nap um, on a regular basis?
0: So, Carl, I think she's saying you can take your nap.
1: Thank you. <laughs> but I, I, but I would first try it. to uh, optimize nocturnal sleep.
0: <laughs> I have a couple of follow-ups to Carl's question. One, one is, uh, should should companies be setting aside nap rooms?
1: That there is sort of a movement, and some sort of news reports of this happening too. And, and there's also, sort of more, more broadly speaking, beyond nap rooms, I think that there is uh, increasing awareness among companies that uh, you know, you know, the, the tradition of you know, you know, working 24 hours a day and sacrificing sleep to get more work done. Again, uh, we companies are sort of waking up to the notion that. And this um, behavior is actually compromising productivity uh, rather than enhancing it um, so things like nap rooms things like um, you know having sort of corporate um, you know top top down messaging that um, sending emails at four am from the CEO is not a great idea because um, then subordinates uh, follow that. Um, You know, so I think that there is sort of a movement towards companies being more cognizant of the fact that, you know, rather than being the thing to sacrifice um, for the pursuit of productivity and success, that actually uh, sleep is a priority. And we actually uh, recently uh, submitted or published a RAND report on the economic implications of sleep loss at a global level. We found that the U.S. economy alone – suffers about a $411 billion cost annually as a result of insufficient sleep. That's real money. That's real uh, money. That's real money. And we showed it at a global scale. Um, this was uh, led by uh, RAND economist uh, uh, Marco Hafner um, from our uh, RAND UK office. And they demonstrated this really in an elegant way um, in in several countries, the U.S. showing the, the largest um, impact, but when you look at the numbers um, and when you look at the data on how sleep loss can affect mortality, so workers can die younger, how sleep loss can affect productivity, and just like I said with Daylight Savings, when workers show up next week, um, they tend to be less productive. Um, and also, there's and that's
0: you know, where and that's where the money figure comes from. When you said less productive, that's where the four hundred eleven billion dollars comes from. Is it lost productivity?
1: It's it's a combination of the loss of productivity, early mortality, so less worker years, and third, back to our previous conversation, um, the impact on adolescents. So their lifetime earnings and their academic potential, um, if they're sleep deprived early, also has a cumulative impact on our global economy.
0: You you mentioned some health effects there. This poor sleep—it's—it's linked to disease. uh, Other health effects.
1: Yes. And so, I mean, sleep really, I mean, I always get back to the sleep affects every aspect of our health and functioning. So you name it, I probably, there's probably some data to support it. So you can think about it cognitively. Um, there's the uh, effects on our ability to think clearly, to concentrate to attention. There's even long-term effects on our brain with studies showing that uh, during sleep, our brain basically clears out any of the toxins or plaques That are associated with the development of um, um, things like Alzheimer's. And so, if you skimp out on sleep, you kind of, you know, your opportunity to clear out um, that trash in the brain um, is limited, which can increase the risk potentially for things like Alzheimer's. Physically, there's consequences. Numerous studies um, have shown that sleep disturbances and sleep loss are associated with increased risk of obesity, heart disease, diabetes. And there's the mental health consequences. Sleep uh, loss and sleep problems um, are a symptom of virtually every known mental health condition. But they're also known to predict the onset of new mental health conditions, including depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and even suicide.
0: Are there maybe some slightly less consequential effects, uh, moodiness, irritability? Are, Are these things we should worry about?
1: Yeah, because they have, they they, have, they affect us in our relationships, you know, with our coworkers and our in our families. Um, so yeah, on a on a short term basis, and this actually might be something that you know people will experience um, as we uh, adjust to daylight savings, and we even have this mild dose of sleep restriction. Um, when you're sleep deprived, even of a Somewhat mild level, you're more likely to be irritable. Your frustration tolerance is lower. Uh, you're less able to problem solve. You're more likely to engage in conflict. Um, and so, a lot of I, I work quite a bit on couples and sleep and um, really trying to understand. And what our data has shown is that, you know, sleep loss cannot, can not only compromise our ability to function healthily in our relationships, um, but also. Our relationships can affect our sleep, so there can be this kind of vicious circle um, that, that that happens. And um, so, prioritizing our sleep um, has benefits not only for our own individual health and well-being, but also um, our relationships with with family um, and, and coworkers.
0: Some of your advice is uh, a little bit old school. W- maybe, what about going back to separate beds?
1: For for couples. For for couples, yeah. Um, Well, you know what? I get asked about this quite a bit. Um, And my suggestion is that, you know, really there's just not a one-size-fits-all approach uh, for every couple. And, uh, you know, couples' decision to sleep together or apart really should be at a couple level. I've seen many couples who, for various reasons, have found that, for instance, if their sleep schedules due to work or just their internal schedules, one is a um, you know morning person, the other is a night person, that their schedules just don't coincide. These can be otherwise perfectly happy couples who have decided that they just sleep better while apart. You know, I, I really don't, I think that that's, you know, couples who are able to negotiate their evening arrangements in a healthy and honest way, um, you know, that doesn't have to mean anything about the quality of the relationship. Although we tend to have this sort of stigma around the importance of the marital bed um, being the sort of symbol of the marital unity. It does not have to be that way. Couples can adapt in, in, in many different ways. For many couples, sleeping together is Um, a really important um, uh, couple-level behavior. Um, But again, you know, and and there can be many benefits of that, um, but I think it's important for couples to not operate on the assumption of what we should be doing um, because it's sort of culturally normative, but what really works for them or what's not working for them. And for couples who choose to sleep apart, if it's because one or both members is snoring in the case, I always say before you choose the separate beds, even though there's nothing wrong with that, maybe consider the root of the problem. If there's a significant sleep disorder happening, which snoring, for instance, could be indicative of, it's really important for the spouse to be the nudge to get your partner into the doctor to be tested for a sleep disorder.
0: I would like to ask, Wendy, you mentioned in passing that you are... uh... Uh, helping organize a conference, and I believe RAND is co-sponsoring a conference. When when, and where is that, and what's it all about?
1: Yeah, thanks so much for bringing that up. Um, it is coming up April 27th and 28th. Um, it's the first ever, ever national conference on adolescent sleep, health, and school start times. It's going to be at the JW Marriott in Washington, D.C. Uh, RAND is a co-sponsor, as you mentioned, um, and I'm part of the steering committee. I'll be presenting, as will um, Marco Hafner, along with And this is why this is really such an unprecedented uh, conference, literally, you know, the top names in the field of sleep, uh, including Dr. Mary Karskadden, Dr. Judith Owens, uh, Dr. Charles Seisler from Harvard, uh, and Dr. Dan Bicey, and many others, um, uh, we will all be presenting um, at this conference, along with top um, education experts, um, including uh, Dr. Kyla Wallstrom, who's from the University of Minnesota. She conducted the pioneering study um, in the 90s uh, in Minnesota, uh, which really um, sort of spearheaded this movement and sh- was the first um, to show some clear evidence that delaying start times uh, is uh, beneficial for adolescent outcomes. And the other reason why this is such a unique conference is we have these, you know, sleep scientists in one room, as well as um, education experts school administrators um, and um, community members from districts that have su- successfully adopted a later start time um, and so it's a real opportunity for the public who's invited we really are looking for a diverse um, audience um, who may be interested in this issue or the their district might be considering a later start time but they may not fully understand the science, which most people don't, and it's really important to understand the why. Why are we doing this? Because change is hard. And then also, to have the experts in the room who have successfully um, implemented a start time change, they'll be there too, and so it'll be really implementation-focused, which, as I mentioned before, that's really where school districts are challenged um, and that they may consider the issue, and there is this growing momentum, but then they get stymied by the fact that change is hard and frankly even though districts are big and small across the country and varied in size and sociodemographics, demographics they all have somewhat unique issues. The big issues, the big implementation issues that school districts face are very similar and so this is a unique opportunity to hear from the experts on how to deal with transportation, how to deal with the impact um, on elementary school. School students, how to deal with um, the impact on sports, other extracurriculars. So it's a really exciting opportunity. Again, coming up April 27th and 28th, um, and registration is open. The
0: key, the key question for me is, what time does that conference start?
1: Oh, well, you're, that's a question that I'm going to have to look at the website for. I believe it's 8 a.m. I just hope it's
0: not. I just, um, I just hope it's not too early. That's my only concern.
1: <laughs> well. Um, Again, we're adults. We are not. Te- this is not geared towards teenagers. So we adults really can um, uh, get to a meeting at eight a.m. I believe that's the, that's the start time on April twenty seventh. I wouldn't do this if it was right. geared towards the teenagers.
0: All right. All right. I, I think we are going to wrap up in a minute. But for, first, a quick lightning round of questions. Uh, should we should we ditch daylight savings time?
1: Should we ditch daylight savings? Um, if, if I were making these kind okay. of decisions, yes.
0: All right. We've put Wendy in charge. No more daylight savings. What is the ideal number of hours of sleep per night for an adult?
1: Okay. The single most um, asked question of every sleep researcher, how much sleep should we actually be getting? For most adults, it's between seven to nine hours is what's recommended. Um, and, again, there are individual differences. Individual differences in that, but but that, that's the general range that's recommended.
0: All right, you've covered a lot of advice for how to get a better night's sleep. Can you prioritize and give us the top three let's say
1: top three, okay, I'm going to go back to it, okay Old school as it was, keep technology out of the bedroom. Um, it's, it's both important. one, okay, two, allow ample opportunity for sleep. make sleep a priority in your life. Three, keep a consistent wake-up time and get morning light exposure.
0: Okay. So it's uh, 1244 in Washington, so we are at the end of our time. Thanks, Wendy, for your time and insights. Uh, Thanks to our Policy Circle and RAN Next members and friends for joining on this call. If you'd like more information about upcoming Policy Circle events or to listen to a podcast, please visit RAN.org or contact us directly, policy underscore circle at rand.org. This concludes our call. I hope we kept you all wide awake for it. Thanks for participating. Have a great day. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.